Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Drifter's Sympathy on Feral Audio. To support this and other Feral Audio podcasts, go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal at no extra cost. I met Duncan Trussell in the 90s in North Carolina. We both grew up there, and... I unconsciously, I think I had some sort of inkling that I would tell this Narcissus and Goldman style weaving of our development and how we grew up into the freaks that we became. But as I told the story to my friend Jonah, it turned into so many tangential tendrils that that went so many different directions about what it means to be this amorphous teenager and not know what you're becoming and that kind of moment of potential magic that I think everybody has. So I wanted to delve into that atmosphere and the romance of those times. If that's nostalgic or not, I don't care. Uh, I just like to go through the past. I do it every day. It's kind of a thing that I've always done is gone through the past and tried to pick it apart to protect myself from the future or prepare for it. The story begins in 1999 when I just graduated college and the phone rang. It was Duncan, and he had a new idea on what I should do with my life. Duncan moves out to L.A. and starts working the phones in the back of the comedy store, which I think was a job he found in the paper. I think he was mildly interested in comedy. I don't think he visualized rising up in power. or He wasn't doing stand-up or anything at this point? Because he talks a lot about you being very active, like performing music when you guys are in school. Like, and sort of, um, not not being jealous of it, but you sort of having found that already. 
Right. No, he wasn't doing any comedy. I mean, he was the funniest person I've ever met. But bridging that talent, raw talent, into an industry where you're on stage is that there's such a different world. Right. It's entirely different. I'm sure you've sort of watched that as you like grew up. I don't know. Was your sister always into comedy? Vanessa didn't really get into it till she was in college. She was in this all female sketch group um, called Bloomers that she talks about all the time. Hmm. Um, and yeah, and then she moved to Chicago and did Second City and all that stuff. So I guess maybe around the same stage of development. Duncan was known as being incredibly funny, but like it wasn't like in a way where you tell jokes. It was this very right. strange way of being funny that was uncontrollable to him. You watched him and the way his brain would work, and it was like, obviously there's like a super high level of intelligence going on, but maybe so much self-loathing or discomfort in the world that it was kind of scattered into these weird aspects of his behavior. So I don't know when he consciously like decided that comedy was like a natural route for him, but I, I think he figured there was nothing better to try and he went out there and basically just needed money for food and he's working the phones in the back so that by the time i was graduating the next semester he'd already become the booking agent basically which was really fast to gain the trust of mitzi shore who's polly shore's mom and known as the sort of pioneering feminist force behind all of the great comics in America, like right. David Letterman, Eddie Murphy, you know, it goes on and on and on and on. Every comic was honed and refined by her. And so somehow Duncan became really close to her and she just saw, you know, LA has this um, side that's always been obsessed with magic, telling the future and crystal balls and, Ever since Jane Mansfield was a Satanist and Anton LaVey, like, cured her son. And right. It's always had this kind of, like, you know, you go to, like, a guru and they'll tell you what to do with your career. So somehow Mitzi Shore saw this energy in Duncan that she thought he needed to, like, seize something. And so I had gone home and I was in Chapel Hill probably just getting drunk every day and probably having the time of my life. I just graduated. No responsibilities. No responsibilities. All of my old friends being able to return to them and just feel that much more like sort of secure and, and um, just in terms of identity, just like happier and more, you know, off most drugs and just sort of like I'm actually making sense and functioning on a higher level. I remember being in the kitchen and the phone rang and Duncan had called from the comedy store and he was like, you have a job starting in two and a half days. If you can get here, I told Missy Shore that you are the smartest person I know. So she wants to give you a job. And I'm like, uh, what job? And, and he's like, uh, well, you'll be the manager of the, of the comedy store. And I'd only ever wash dishes. Uh, 
And so I probably, my first response was probably that I didn't want to do it because I would have been weirded out by it. But then I think I hung up the phone and told my mom what was going on. And she was just very encouraging. She was like, I'll, I'll buy you a, a truck for graduation and you should go do it. And so we went out, bought this little truck and I had to get there in two and a half days or something, something impossible. Yeah. But I did it and I don't, it seemed very... Did you go by yourself? Yeah. It was probably one of the most romantic little moments of my life because um, all I had was this truck with a like shitty old extended top on the right, back. Right, right. My mom like just threw a futon in there. I had like a CD player and like 10 CDs that I could afford. And I seem to remember I had a couple porn magazines. I don't know why. I could guess why. <laughs> and, then, and I think I had some pot and literally maybe only just a guitar. This is 1999 in the summertime. Okay. I would wake up, drive all day pour water on the radiator as it overheated through Texas and shit and pull into hotels at night. I kind of discerned that would be a safe parking lot to sleep in because I couldn't afford anything. I just uh, lie in the cab, which was like tin and the rain would come down on the, the little roof. And I, I guess I would read my magazines or something. <laughs> I remember feeling that kind of cinematic, beautiful, autonomous feeling you feel when you're like young and you don't have to do anything for the first time that anyone wants you to do. I was probably the happiest I could ever possibly be in my life. I remember pulling into L.A. at like 4.30 in the morning or something and, and just driving, you know, over a hundred, flying down the freeway, trying to find Santa Monica, where Duncan was living in a shack behind some houses. And I'd never been to California, ever. I was probably 21, maybe 22. I pulled into his, his shack, moved right in with him and started living with him and had to go get clothes to go to this job interview at the comedy store. I didn't know anything about nice clothes, but my grandma had uh, sent me a bunch of money and I went over to banana Republic because somebody had mentioned banana Republic and, uh, I just bought all black clothes and showed up to the comedy store. And as I was rounding the corner, just decided to try to make, an extremely confident face and like my stride or whatever, just like I just decided to purposely look like I knew exactly what I was going to be doing. And I saw the manager standing with Duncan as I rounded the corner and he looked at me from very far away and I could just see him size me up and just kind of nod. Like I'd already gotten the job and, uh, 
I just thought this guy is such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I'd had no background in um, any sort of managerial work or anything that was actually required me to be authoritative, which was going to be a problem. It's just a matter of time before they figured out that I didn't really want to do the job. And as I walked up with my new clothes on, they handed me the keys to the entire building, which just seemed really irresponsible of them. <laughs> Because, you know, I could have been anyone. And, and So you had no idea what Duncan's told them about you other than he thinks you're really smart? Well, that's what he told me on the phone when I was sitting okay. in my mom's kitchen. He just said that um, he'd had this conversation with Mitzi Shore and that's it. But I think, have you ever seen The Kid Stays in the Picture with Robert Evans? Yes. You know, the way that he kind of began his career by being at that swimming pool and whoever it was, like Grace Kelly or somebody saw him. Somebody saw him and was like, I need a male lead in this new picture I'm doing for Columbia down the street, and you look right. I don't care if you can act, but you look right. And so it's like some premonition told me if I just looked right, he would trust me. And he handed me the keys, and then this whole new life sort of started that I was really uncomfortable with you know like basically i come into work and we had this uh this gay keyboard player that would do the little like da -da 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 -da, like the music for the uh comics to come on and off right it seems so turn of the century or something meaning 1900 so we me and that guy would just get super high because we were so bored. I don't know why we were that bored, but we were really bored, and we we just couldn't function very well. And so I'd have to count thousands of dollars of cash coming through the door, and I just couldn't really do it very well. There'd always be hundreds missing, just because I couldn't, I couldn't keep track of everything. And um, I think it became clear that I didn't really want to manage the comedy store, that I... That I probably just wanted to like have a lower menial job you know and so i'm surprised there weren't other people who worked there who would have like wanted to move up the ladder or was it mostly just sort of comedians who just wanted to perform and didn't really care about the administrative the way that it was all laid out was that there was the waitresses um the floor manager and then there was the doorman and the doorman are the comics Right. Okay. So that's why they didn't want my job is because everybody working there is struggling to get on Siren Live or whatever, which some of them did. So their sort of day-by-day -day existence as doormen was arbitrary. They were just trying to get on stage. Right. So uh, I basically just had to, like, turn on the blue light that kicks off the comic, which is a horrible responsibility because... Every other night, Martin Lawrence or, like, Andrew Dice Clay or, or uh, Eddie Griffin or somebody would go up there, and their whole act was, like, defying me, <laughs> turning on the blue light to try to kick them off. And they would just stay up there for hours, and that was part of their whole thing. They just... 
you know, almost get in a fight with me and I'm high. I'm like, I don't care. You know, <laughs> I'm just trying, trying to sort of pretend that I'm doing my job. And, um, it's just crazy to me that like a money making kind of legendary place like that would hire someone with no experience. who was always stoned and not really seeing, sounds like doing a great job and just sort of have no kind of oversight on it. But it, it, this is 1999, right. and that is at the heart of this story in the sense that L.A., when you say that now, it's not the same place. It's entirely different. It's not even connected really anymore. I mean, there was like the L.A. that the Eagles lived in, you know, the Echo Park that they lived in. Right. But then by the 80s, uh, by the time Motley Crue take over, I feel like L.A. really reached its true persona. It like it came to a type of fruition in the eighties because excess was not something to be ashamed of in the seventies. I mean, it wasn't something to be ashamed of, but in the eighties, it was the goal of all life. Right. Right. So the whole sunset strip culture of porn stars and hair metal bands, I feel like it froze LA's values in a certain way. I'm not really focusing on the film industry so much as like the daily waking life on the street, you know? But so there's like by 99, you're right in this weird cross section where it's not, it's going to be like at least almost 10 more years before it, like hipsters really put their foot down. But back in 99, it's still, it's kind of the shambles of the hair metal era. It's not, like, there's no, there's no soul to it. No one listens to you when you talk to them ever. They're just looking past you at a career opportunity. I was finding out very quickly that, like, you're never going to have a good conversation. You're not going to start a band. But I didn't really care because in my mind, I was just summertime. I got out of school. Right, right, right. So I'm basically just in this little booth, turning on the blue light, trying to kick Andrew Dice Clay off stage day in and day out. And for the first time, like one of the comics comes in who I actually looked up to and was sort of starstruck by. You know, back in the 80s is like coming home from elementary school you just turned on Comedy Central, and it was really bad back in the day. Right, When right. it first started, you know, when you wanted to watch Kids in the Hall, and it wasn't on, you'd always have some really terrible stand-up that you had to wade through waiting for Kids in the Hall to come on. And you just inadvertently memorize all these, like, you know, John Panette, the fat guy at the salad bar and the... Chinese people are telling him to go away and never come back. And right. their security guard has a, a gun to his head and all this stuff. Do not come here anymore. <laughs> Why you have spare rib? You're so big. <laughs> Eat vegetable. It was like all the cheesiest 80s acts. Everybody had grown up on on Delirious and Raw and all the Eddie Murphy stuff. And so it just like, there was a certain market right, at the time. 
And so within that market was this one comic that I forgot about. But when he walked in the door, I it like connected me with my current situation with the former me that truly loved comedy and was, was obsessed with comedy in the 80s. So when I saw him, I just felt like a weird familiarity and was like, wow, like, you know, this is an icon. And unfortunately, I won't be saying who this is. We all know it's Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> Same era. Basically, like, the only claim to fame that he had that you would know him for was that he was in Revenge of the Nerds 2. And so when I've told this story in the past, people always assume that I'm talking about Booger. But so that I think that was part of the pull, is that the guy had been involved in these touchstones of your youth right. that you're sort of, like, unconsciously you know, you feel this weird affinity for these things like Revenge of the Nerds. I mean, who doesn't? So I, I look at him, he's coming up to the booth to get on stage and, and I'm, you know, they have to kind of come to me to, cause some, for some crazy reason, I have all the power. They can't, even Polly Shore can't get on stage with, without talking to me. So this comic comes up to the window where I'm working and I'm like really surprised at how nice he is to me which probably should have been a red flag. I mean, he was instantly like not trying to get away and on stage, but he was instantly like asking me questions, you know, we're like, I'm volunteering stupid shit. Like I just moved here. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know anything about LA or, or what to do or anything. And he's like, Oh yeah, well we should hang out. We should, I'll show you around. So I, I guess I was probably excited by that. <laughs> California to me was not really even a real place. You know, California was only something I'd seen in the movies. I'd never been to Venice Beach. I've seen it in so many hundreds of movies, you right, know? Right. You know how they all open up with, like, the shitty, like... Gold's Gym dudes. Yeah, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the girls roller skating. Totally. And, like, a... Dun, 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 you know, some sort of, like, shitty little Fast Times at Ridgemont High song. And they show the palm trees, and that flips to the Lamborghini, and that flips to the, the beach, and then that flips to, you know the girl with the lipstick sipping the soda. It's like so played out, but so ingrained in not only American culture, but like people all over the world have been raised on this shit. Right. So it doesn't seem to be real to me. It seems like maybe right off the bat, maybe because of the circumstances, I go out with this 80s comics star and it does have, like, a feel to it, like, not that we're on a date, but it does kind of feel like it's a, it's a special friendship, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, because I'd never really picked up on people's sexuality that much, for whatever reason. Like, I remember being about, like, 13 and my best friend was a 34 year old gay guy 
and I didn't know he was gay. And he took me outside of this restaurant one day. He sat me down on these, uh, where you get the newspapers on the curb. And he was like, you have to understand that people are going to think our relationship is a little bit weird. I was just like, what do you mean, Ron? <laughs> and uh, he said, well, Emil, I, I'm funny. And I was like, Ron, you are the funniest person I've ever met in my life. I, I think you're amazing. And he's like, no, I don't know how else to tell you this. You know, anyway, my point is I never was uh, able to pick up on, on sexuality very well because I just didn't care, I guess. I'm not sure. So my memories of, of hanging out on these little rendezvous with this 80s famous comic. Did this remind you of hanging out with Ron? Well, me and Ron had a very special relationship. Um, he truly was my best friend when I was 13. It seemed completely normal to me that he was a 34-year-old gay waiter that followed the Grateful Dead every chance that he could. Um, I mean, we he he helped me. He guided me into, like, the first time I took acid and, and then the next time and the next time. And, and, like, the first times I smoked pot. And he basically, like in a very old school 70s sitting around in your underwear listening to king crimson kind of way like he guided me into drugs you know he showed me how to to do it not necessarily safely but we like we had a reference point because of sid barrett and because of like basically like a pink floyd obsession he was kind of showing me um ritualistically or shamanistically i think he was trying to outline our position as outsiders sort of at the time you know and i don't know if this exists the same way anymore if a 16 year old kid takes acid now like i'm not sure if somebody comes out of the woodwork to school them in its history and like in an indigenous tribe you know how how it would be this very important thing to get context on, right? Yeah. So so Ron played this part of my life where he was certainly some sort of oracle and, like, uh, gave me context to drug culture. Going back to... I need, a, like, a better code word for this 80s comic because he's... I don't know how else to say this very famous 80s right. comic. So... The atmosphere of that summer was already strange and very foreign to me. Just the sun in California is so different. It made me feel more like I was nearing death instead of it being like this life-bringing thing. So meeting this guy was kind of like this nice stroke of luck because he was the first friendly person I had met. And so we're like out having brunch I pick up the paper and there'd been some some satanic serial killings and it kind of like threw a little ominousness into the air we walked out to the beach and he told me he was afraid of the water and 
would I hold his hand and walk into the water with him. And slowly things started to get a little bit strange. Like he took me over to his house and I'd never been inside a gated community, you know, or to the home of a millionaire or anything like that. And we opened the garage where we like walk in and the first thing laying out is these issues of Playboy, but they seem planted like too close to, to the entrance, but they're also so dusty that no one's looked at them since the seventies. So that seemed very odd. And then we walk past and into the house and I think I had to take a shower at some point and the only time in my life I've ever been completely sure that someone is watching me take a shower through some sort of peephole, but for no reason, but just the feeling of being watched, you know, and things get a little stranger, you know, he like requests, um, that I give him a massage and I don't see anything wrong with it at all. I also feel like it sounds like, I'm sure it seems hindsight 2020, but I feel like I've been in not this situation, but situations sort of similar where you're like, yeah, at the time it's like, it doesn't seem that weird. Mm -hmm. Like it seems weird thinking about stuff now having that perspective. I totally agree. I mean, I sound like an idiot in the story. You know, everyone's an idiot when they're that age, though, pretty much. And I didn't, I don't think I ever felt like unsafe or anything. So I did give him the massage because he seemed like, I think he was saying he was like writhing in pain or like he had this really intense back pain. And who was I to judge him, you know? Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, also, he started saying that he would pay me to do stuff. He said that he would pay me to paint one of his rooms, so I painted one of his rooms. It was, like, easily the worst paint job anyone's ever done to anything. I mean, it looked insane. As I was painting, I, I had the distinct feeling I was being watched through a peephole again. So maybe I gave him a massage because the money was going to be coming, you know, not, right. not a lot ever came, you know, it was like, it was like a really bad movie. Like I'm going along his back and he's like further down, further down. Clearly his intention starts to like make me really actually finally get a little bit angry, you know? Right. And to break the momentum or something, I remember just getting up and walking over to the sink, like I pretending I had to throw something away to get away from him for a second and, you know, stop the flow of it going further down. And I opened the cupboard door and, and there's this picture of, of Jimmy Fallon uh, taped on the inside of the cupboard door. But it was 1999, so no one knew who he was. And there was a, like a, a kind of serial killer X and a circle around his face, you know, like he would soon be destroyed. <laughs> when you saw SNL, you're like, 
to yeah, where you're exactly. like, this is a dude who is in Texas. Yeah, there was no other like lead up. I don't remember him being on anything else. Yeah, I don't really either, I guess. It's true. And I'm sure he was doing stuff in LA. I don't know if he was like Groundlings or what his comedy background is. I could almost guarantee he probably worked at the comedy store. I don't know. There was like a culture of desperate comics there. And I used to go out with Andrew Dice Clay's girlfriend at night after work, like around four in the morning. And uh, she would she would ask me what was going on. I told her that I was hanging out with this this comic. And she was like, you didn't suck his dick, did you? And I was like, you really think I would do that? You know? And she's like, well, everybody else has. Like all these struggling comics have. Because that's a system. You come into L.A., you're looking for a leg up. Somebody offers you a way in, and you do whatever they say. Right. And so she said that, you know, a bunch of the other comics had sucked his dick. And they kind of cast a pallor over the Jimmy Fallon photo. You know, I was just kind of like, huh, I guess he's been on this couch giving him a massage, right? That's the assumption in that moment is that he has been in this position in this room, but he didn't do what he was told to do or something. Right. I mean, what else are you going to draw from that? Yeah, no, totally. That seems like a logical... How else could he defy him, you know? (laughs) So, as time is going on, he's hiding his eccentricities less and less, and he's, like, calling me every day, and he's like, I'm outside your house, what are you doing? You know, like, he just won't stop. And uh, I wouldn't say it was scaring me, but it was like the kettle was kind of whistling in terms of my time in LA. Like I just didn't really give a shit about anybody. Nobody cared about me. The more that this guy would call me, the more I was just like, I got to leave soon, you know? And it was more like a, just an omen. And then I think maybe the final night I had in LA he takes me out to do a bunch of coke with these complete losers. And I think he's trying to bait me into a state of mind, you know, like get me into a vulnerable position or something. And I don't know if he's drunk, but he's making me drive his Mercedes Benz down Sunset Boulevard with the tinted windows. The whole thing feels so foreign Uh, and confusing to me and I'm really coked up and I think I'm thinking I just have to get the fuck out of here I have to I have to leave as soon as possible and he turns up the stereo really loud and he's and he's like looks at me and he's like you gotta stay with me tonight and it's this very cinematic moment where he's like, he thinks that because he took me out to do drugs and he's got on his favorite ballad that maybe I'll go home with him. Right. And he's just looking at me like, over and over, begging me, you gotta stay with me tonight. He'd never talked like that before. He just put me in such a position that I was finally like, 
that's never going to happen. I'm getting more and more angry. And he's starting to cry. And the song is the Radiohead song, Don't Leave Me High, Don't Leave Me Dry. It's already such a cloying song, but just like looking at him weeping, you know, begging for sex was like so unsettling and so like everything he tried to do to me to get me into this position had been so ill chosen and like just backfired so completely that that this seemed like kind of the high point he's he's like lost it at this point and sobbing and I, I'm getting a serial killer vibe now like he's he's not gonna leave the outside of my house he's right, he's right. you know and so as far as I remember that the next day I just broke this lease that I had made with Duncan and which really put him in a shitty position and just got in my truck and started driving to Portland Oregon I never saw that guy again and um, I think I maybe cashed like an $86 check that he had given me to paint that room he would really be pretty angry if he knew I was doing this podcast (laughs) but I don't know what happened to him you know if he's still just doing the exact same thing and preying on young boys that just get to LA and I wonder if there's an XF photo of you somewhere in his place well I never had a headshot So in order to get things going, I wanted to ease in with a sort of casual tale. But next episode, we're going to start switching into basically the archaeology of music history in the various parts of the world. 
I was going to go back to the Big Bang of when the Beatles arrived and sort of follow the seed of progression into the intersection of folk and rock music and how they sort of exploded into a new form following into Prague and various other things that happened. But the emphasis will be on generally unknown stuff that I accidentally came across and now has formed the core of my sort of outsider leanings. (laughs) 